Turn your Bibles, please, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're continuing in our series, What Grace Is This? We're actually continuing the message we started last Sunday here in this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 7 through 15. Scripture reads, Therefore, as ye abound in everything... In faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich." And herein I give my advice, that this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not." For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack." As we said, we're continuing in this series of What Grace Is This? I mentioned there are four verses in the New Testament with the phrase, this grace. Each is written by the Apostle Paul. They identify four areas of the grace of God at work in a believer's life. Those passages are Ephesians chapter 3, 8, where we saw amazing grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, where we see available grace. Here in chapter 8, verse 7, abundant grace. And then as well, chapter 8, verse 19 of 2 Corinthians, we'll see abiding grace. We started last Sunday on this, considering the the five areas or Christian graces that Paul identified in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. He said, therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. That phrase, this grace also, is speaking specifically of the grace of giving. But the grammar of the text indicates the previous five graces are also to be a part of the Christian life. We looked at those last Sunday, considering faith, which represents our confidence in God, Our communication to others is utterance. Knowledge is our comprehension of God's word. Diligence is our commitment to service. And our compassion for others is seen in the grace of love. I mentioned also that chapters 8 and 9 deal with the apostles' collection for the Judean saints. This was an offering to aid the members of the church of Jerusalem during a time of great hardship and famine in their land. I personally believe 
his exposition on the subject of giving here in chapters 8 and verse 9 is the most comprehensive one found in the Word of God. In these two chapters, we see Paul identifies the principles for giving, chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 15, the purpose for giving, chapter 8, verse 16 through chapter 9, verse 5, the policies in giving, and in chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, the promises in giving. Now, as we look this morning, we're going to be touching on this grace of giving. I realize the topic of giving is a touchy subject for a lot of folks. The Bible has a great deal to say about our finances, and in fact, how people view money is an indication of their spirituality, and what they do with their money reflects their morality. In the words of Jesus, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As you know, I seldom speak on the subject of giving. I like to keep it to once a year, but in this series, it has come up, and we're addressing it. Not because I think there's a problem in our church concerning this. Certainly quite the opposite is true. However, it is important for us to understand what the scripture has to say in regard to our giving in connection with all of the other graces God expects us to manifest as his believers. Before we get going, let me say this. The Bible does not forbid possessing money, but it does provide specific warnings as to how we view our finances. Proverbs 23, verse 4, labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Ecclesiastes 5:10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. 1 Timothy 6:10, and by the way, this is probably one of the most misquoted verses of Scripture. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Why? Which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Then later, Paul adds to that in verse 16, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly. All things to enjoy. Money in one form or another is an integral part of any culture and serves an important purpose. For example, 1 Timothy 5.8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You see, finances are used to provide for our family. Finances are used to pay our debts. Romans 13.8, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And finances are provided for the purpose of future needs. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Emphasizing, of course, the importance of planning ahead. But once those obligations are met, believers are ready to give money for the purpose of helping in the work of the ministry and furthering the gospel as it is preached across the country and around the world. There aren't any rules in the New Testament concerning forcing Christians to give. I want to make that clear. Nothing in the New Testament 
gives me the, as a pastor the authority to say, you have to give because, or you have to give this amount because. However, there are guidelines and principles that we can easily understand and follow. Here in our text, Paul is admonishing Corinthian believers who have done so well in exercising numerous Christian graces to likewise demonstrate their love through giving. Put it plainly, he's saying, you've done so much for the cause of Christ, but you can do more. And I think we all agree, in one way or another, we can do more in service for the Lord. And what Paul is getting across now is this area of giving. They've done so much in the area of, as we had said, faith and love and so on. But now, he said, I want you to go a little bit farther in your service of the Lord. And it's in the area of giving. You see, true love requires action. Paul encourages them here to give generously. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle John wrote about this when he said, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother having need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Yes, love requires action. Paul uses several arguments with the Corinthian believers to set forth this principle that he might encourage them, that he might challenge them, that he might prod them to go on and being good givers as well as the other areas in which they excelled. So this morning, we're going to get started looking at this first argument that he puts forth, and that is the argument of proven examples. Notice verses 8 and 9 of our text. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. First of all, Paul calls attention to what other Christians have done. In fact, there are two examples here he uses. The first is that of the Macedonian believers, as we see here in verse 8. He cites the examples of these believers, telling the Christians at Corinth of the generosity of the Macedonian churches and how God had used them. They were poor and they faced great hardship, but they gave of what they had far more than anyone had given before or had been expected to give. As Paul addresses the importance of the need of the Corinthians' generosity, he makes it very clear that he's not giving them a command. Notice he said, I speak not by commandment. He's not saying you have to do this. He's not telling you, I expect you to do this if you want me to believe you're going to be a good Christian. No, he's saying, I'm not telling you have to do it. I'm telling you what others have done. And then he's going to go on to point to the blessings that they received. But he makes it very clear. It's not a command. Giving is to be done voluntarily and with a willing heart. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. In this exposition, if you will, about giving, Paul says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Though he says, I'm not giving you a command, he said, I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you, and I'm doing so with the enthusiasm, with the enthusiasm, with the zeal, with the excitement that is put forth by these Macedonian believers. This is the idea behind the word forwardness which means earnestness, 
carefulness or diligence, that same word is used in other passages of Scripture, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord in Romans 12.11 and 2 Peter 1.5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, and so on. Mark Twain is credited with saying, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Paul set forth a good example for the Corinthian believers. Our examples as saints of God and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is important. Whether we realize it or not, it really is. One's financial status does not determine whether a person is more or less important than another. We are each equally important in the eyes of the Lord, and our commitment to faithfully follow Him is what determines the value and effectiveness of our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, back to a willing heart. God's not impressed because some people give more than others. I believe what pleases the mind and heart of God is seeing people who willingly give of themselves in service to the Lord. This was the case with the Macedonians. Let me remind you, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul calls attention to the fact that these people were dirt poor. They had next to nothing, but they provided an excellent example, an object lesson of faith and generosity for others to emulate. Notice 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. How that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Their testimony was something that Paul held up as a good example to people in his day. May I say their testimony is a good example and continues to this day. The Macedonian churches provide for us a picture of what it is to earnestly, excitedly, diligently serve the Lord, even in a time of hardship and doing without, but yet praising Him for the opportunity to give for His service. The Corinthians demonstrated great grace in so many areas. Paul wanted them to not only be leaders in those areas, but also in this grace of generosity. However, to experience the grace of God in their lives, the believers had to come to the point where they would trust the Lord with everything they had. And that's the same thing for every one of us, recognizing that everything that we possess, we have gained from God. We have received from the Lord. The scripture tells us every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That according to the book of James. James makes it clear, what we have, we receive 
of the Lord. What a blessing to know. God provides for us. And we in turn are expected. We're expected of the Lord to use what he has placed in our care for his honor and his glory. It was Jim Elliott, a missionary who gave his life in service to the Lord, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So many of us are interested in holding on to that which is fleeting, hoarding that which is one day going to pass away. All the scripture makes it clear. We need to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We do so by investing in the work of the Lord. Again, going back to our introduction, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with making sure we can provide for our family, pay our bills, and prepare for rainy days ahead, so to say. But be careful. We don't become hoarders, and we don't love this world, and we don't love the things of this world to the point where we're not willing to let them go. I've said it many times, and I don't know who originally said this, but there's nothing wrong with having things as long as things don't have you. Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers to follow the example of these Macedonians who struggled so greatly through hardship and persecution and great trial of affliction, but yet they zealously, earnestly, gave of themselves to the Lord and gave of their possessions for his service. But notice, that wasn't the only example he holds up here. Verse 9, he goes on to a second example when he says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. The first example was that of the Macedonian believers and churches. The second example is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting because most often when somebody's trying to win an argument or maybe prevail in a debate, he or she will put forth their best arguments, their strongest points first, and then they will bring in some weaker positions to shore up what they have said. But here, Paul, he doesn't pull any punch. He comes out, right? He comes out with the, after giving this first point, this first example of the Macedonians, he reaches for the highest example, the supreme and ultimate motivation for giving. He says, is the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's really the one that I want you to think about. Yes, the Macedonians, they've done a great job and are a wonderful example, but even better than that, it's our Lord. Look at what he has done. You see, the Macedonians weren't induced into giving by gimmicks, guilt, intimidation, or fear. And by the way, those are not acceptable means by which we encourage people to give today. Those, I believe, are contrary to God's plan and God's will in this matter. But rather, what encouraged them to giving was the heavenly example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where in the scripture says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what brought about this grace of giving in their lives. They saw what he did and they said, How can we do anything less? Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the Macedonian churches. These folks witness firsthand the love, watch care, protection, and provision of God in their lives. And it moved them to first give of themselves to the Lord. 
Yes, the Lord is the greatest example of motivation for giving. When we consider what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have to come to this conclusion. I say any logical, reasonable Christian will come to this conclusion. What a good and gracious God he is. I will give my life in service to him. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be a transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, don't be conformed, don't be shaped. Don't be molded by what the world says concerning finances and service. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow his example. Allow your mind to be transformed by the truth of the word of God and allow him to work in your life in such a way that you'll see him living in and through you. How was this accomplished? How did Jesus Christ perform such a great task? This verse is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Jesus left heaven and came to earth when God became man, that he might redeem all mankind from their sin. He became poor, that we might be rich. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. As uh, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. What did Jesus say of his position? He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul to the Romans wrote, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God came from heaven, became man, that we might become the children of God and spend an eternity with him in heaven. Paul's challenge to the Corinthian believers and to Christians today is with that tremendous example of giving before us, how can we hold back? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul writes, what? <laughs> like that. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christ did so much for us. We in turn ought to glorify God in giving it back to him. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes, this scripture is quite clear. 
We ought to give of ourselves in service to the Lord for what he has done for us. He has provided us such a great example in giving all. Is it wrong of him to ask us to give back to him, to give our lives to him, to give what we possess to him? No, not at all. Someone has written, selfless giving to others begins with the giving of ourselves to the Lord. Amy Carmichael, missionary who lived from 1867 to 1951, greatly served the Lord, wrote, You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Paul holds up the Macedonian believers as an example. And then he holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as an example to the Corinthians saying, you want somebody to follow? Here he is. Look what he did for you. Let me encourage you, challenge you, admonish you, provoke you, whatever. Oh, please, follow his example. Learn to give. Learn to give generously. Learn to give graciously. Learn to give joyously. And follow our Lord's example. I'm going to close with this, uh, this illustration. There's an old Persian parable about a monarch who lived in the splendor, wealth, and comfort of his royal palace. Yet his concern for the people of his realm frequently moved him to leave his palace put on the clothes of a common person and walk the streets among his people that he might learn more about his subjects. One day he visited a fireman. Now a fireman was someone whose job was to heat the water in the bathhouse. The Shah was dressed in tattered clothes, walked down the steps to the area where he worked below ground to this tiny cellar and he saw this fireman sitting on a pile of ashes stoking a fire, keeping it going to provide heat to warm the water. The ruler sat beside him and the two began speaking. They struck up a friendship. After a while, that fireman shared some of his food, bread and water, with his visitor and the two of them continued discussing matters of concern to that fireman. The Shah repeatedly visit that fireman to the point where they became good friends. And after a time, he could no longer contain himself. Reminds me of the story of Joseph in revealing himself to his brothers. But after time, he just couldn't hold back any longer. And he told the man who he was. He asked the fireman this question. He said, ask whatever you will. Name a gift that I can give you. The fireman just sat there and stared at him. And a look of wonder and confusion on his face. The Shah thought he may have misunderstood him. So he repeated his question. The fireman replied, My Lord, I understood you. But leaving your palace to sit here with me, partake of my humble food, and listen to the troubles of my heart. Even you could give me no more a precious gift than that. You may give riches to others, but to me you gave yourself. I only ask that you never withdraw your friendship. Now this parable has been told many times with numerous variations and attached to different cultures. But it so well illustrates the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God left heaven, becoming man, that he in turn, man, might win. What a wondrous gift this is to us. And in him giving us such a great gift, we can never repay him. We certainly don't deserve this gift. We can never do enough to earn it. We certainly can't repay him for it. But we can give ourselves in service to the Lord. Again, he's not asking for repayment. But oh, I believe he is asking for gratitude. And we, through a heart of gratitude, an attitude of love and generosity, giving ourselves and giving of our possessions, demonstrate our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two examples Paul used in that first argument. Next week we'll get to the argument of purposeful action and then the argument of providential supply. But considering the examples set before us this morning, how do we measure up in that regard? Do we find ourselves generous or tight-fisted when it comes to this matter of grace giving? This grace, this grace of giving. The Lord has done so much for us. What will we do for him?